book of Genesis, but we're starting a brand new series uh, that I'm calling Unconventional. So feel free to shout out hallelujah. We're not in Genesis 1 to 11 anymore. We're moving on. Now, um, the book of Genesis does feel like a completely different book when you move into these patriarchs. Remember chapters 1 through 11, we had noted that sin unglued everything. Even to the point of a worldwide flood, even to the point of the last righteous man standing on earth, Noah, being caught up in its flood. And then we saw that story last week of Babel, where humanity rebelled against God. And so the nations are in disarray. People are scattered. How in the world is God going to reach all these nations with cultures and different languages? Well, his plan... It's quite unconventional. You see, God's plans, his works, his activities don't tend to easily fit inside of the box of conventional human wisdom. When we look at situations, we often say to ourselves, have you ever said this? If I was God, this is what I would do here. And then as we watch it unfold, we find that God's plan wasn't my plan. And so it tends to be that as we look at the Bible that God does not conform to our plans, purposes, and ways. And if that's true, if God operates in that way, maybe then the person who is following God would look unconventional to the onlooking world. Think of all the people in the Bible who are unconventional. You have Joseph. He has every right to hate his brothers. He chooses not to. You have Moses who is living in the lap of luxury of Pharaoh's courts and he chooses instead to become like a slave. You have Ruth who's living in her own land and she has her own people and she forsakes everything to go live with her destitute mother-in-law. Jeremiah endures physical harm to tell a king that he's wrong. John the Baptist, he wears camel hair, eats honey and locusts, lives out in the desert. Peter, James, and John drop their nets at the simple command, come and follow me. I got to tell you, all these people of the past were unconventional. I believe that the man that we're going to look at this morning is the most unconventional of them all, Abraham. Abraham is a name that is mentioned 312 times in the Bible. He's mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he's held up as a model of faith. Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal with this guy Abraham? I mean, what did he ever do? Uh, He had some cattle. He lived in tents. I mean, he didn't put anybody on the moon. He didn't invent the automobile. What's the big deal with this guy? And yet, when you look at the life of Abraham and history, you can see that God changed the course of human history through his life. So maybe the conventional life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Well, we'll see. We'll take a look as we look at this series together. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, we're in Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27. There's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And if you've never found your way to the book of Genesis, it's really easy. First book of the Bible, you're looking for chapter 11. Verse 27. All right, let's read. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and help him who dishonors you. I will curse. Uh, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. All right, so as we unpack these verses together, we're going to see three movements of this text. Uh, We begin in verse 1 with God's unconventional call, just to remind you of that. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now let's put this into perspective a little bit. Imagine you are lost in the desert and you are parched, your, your tongues sticking to the roof of your mouth. You're thinking to yourself, just one drink of water. I would literally give up my right kidney for one drink of water. As you're walking along, You see at the distance that there is a little shelter, canopy, underneath it. There's a pump. And as you approach the pump, there's a canteen of water hanging from the pump with a little sign that reads, Underneath your feet, there is flowing millions of gallons of fresh, cool water. But in order to use this pump, you will need to prime it. And it requires all the contents of this one canteen. Hmm. What a dilemma. As you sit and you think about this situation, you say to yourself, well, I'm thirsty. I'm on the verge of death here. I need a drink of water just to sustain me so I can make it a couple of more miles. But then you start thinking to yourself, but there's all this water underground maybe. But if I pour out the contents of this canteen, every last drop of it, I might die. It's one of those decisions where you have to make a decision. You're holding something in your hand that you can feel, that you can see, that you can hear when you're shaking it. Or you're seeing a little sign that contains a promise that is indeed your salvation if this is true. To truly appreciate the life of Abraham 
we must realize that his story begins with a similar dilemma. You see, for 70 or 99 years of his 175-year life, Abraham didn't go by Abraham. He was Abram. He lived in a country um, that was uh, a Mecca city center in 2000 BC, Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of Mesopotamia. Much like a modern New York City or a Boston or a London or a Tokyo. This was a place of culture. It sat on the, the large banks of the river of the Euphrates River and present-day Iraq, and there was some 250,000 people living in this place. They had a university. They had a library with vast books. They were esteemed, uh, esteemed in mathematics and astronomy and international commerce. But at the same time, it was also a place that was a center for idolatrous worship. You see, Abram means the father is exalted, which is likely a reference to his God. Uh, they had worshipped a pantheon of gods, but the God that they uh, attributed to being the Lord of the heavens was the moon god Sin. And so here you have Abraham, likely a man of his age, living the good life in Ur, worshiping the God that the other people worship, and participating in all the festivities, enculturated in all of the moralities. That's why verse 1 is such an unconventional call. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Put yourself in his shoes. You have a God that you've never known telling you to leave the place that you're very comfortable with, the place where there's affluence and familiarity and security and even family, to go to a place that you've never seen before. Why? You're not 100% sure. Will it be safe? You don't know. He just simply says go. And that verb go is a term that means go by yourself. You see, God is asking Abraham to believe his bare words. This is an ask of blind faith. No GPS, no clear picture of what the future holds, no crowds cheering you along saying, go Abraham, that's the right call, you should do this. No, in fact, everyone's probably saying quite the opposite. What are you thinking? Are you crazy? You heard a voice. Don't move. Would you have gone? Maybe the best way to answer a question like this is to ask ourselves, how am I currently trusting God with my unknown moments? You see, we all experience unknown moments in this life where faith comes to play, right? Uh, what I can see is not faith. Faith enters into the gap between the known and the unknown. I don't know what your unknown moment is. For you, it might be something like you have an upcoming move, or maybe for you, the unknown is you're feeling the itch to move, but you know that God's calling you to stay. For some of you, it might be that hospital bed, where you'd been laying in a hospital bed and you were sick and, and you just didn't know what the future held. You, you lost control of your body. You had control, but you don't have it anymore. I'm thinking of you fathers that first time you held that little child and said to yourself, what am I going to do with this child? I can't even hardly take care of me. 
Or maybe you're watching that first child leave the home or that last child leave the home. And you're saying, how am I going to fill the void that I'm experiencing right now? For some of you, it might be a new ministry that God's calling you into and you just get this sense that God wants you to do something but you're not sure what he's going to do in and through you. Others of you, it might be a ministry that you've participated in and God's saying, get back in there and make it happen. You see, I don't know what it is for you but I do know that the God who called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans is the same God that is speaking to you in your unknown moments. He is asking you the question, will you trust me with the unknown? Will you go trusting that I am enough? For Abram, God didn't give the reasons for the unconventional call. Often God doesn't check in with me and say, is this okay if I do this? No. But he doesn't leave us with nothing. James Montgomery Boyce notes that God's commands are not always accompanied by reasons, but they are always accompanied by promises expressed or implied. And we see that as we move into verses 2 and 3, God's unconventional promises. Look here at the text again. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now to say that this is a a pivotal statement is an understatement. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 has been called the most important passage in all of the Bible. You see, because all of the Bible flows out of this promise, all of the stories of the Old Testament with the kings and the prophets are moving forward, and then with the coming of Christ and his life and ministry in the Gospels, and then after his resurrection, you have the, the coming of the church and then the epistles of the New Testament that are talking to the church about how to be the church on mission. And then you make your way all the way to the book of Revelation where we're told that Jesus is coming again. It all flows out of Genesis 12, 1 to 3, this promise. It's an important promise. And notice that this covenant is everlasting, unconditional, unconditional in the sense of God doesn't say if, then. He says something different. In fact, it's a, a promise where the responsibility of the promise rests entirely upon God. God says five times, I will do this. And thank God that it all rests on him because as we get into the life of Abraham, we're going to see that he bleeds the same red blood that we bleed, cries the same tears we cry, and sins the same dreadful sins that we sin. And God says, Abraham even though you're not adequate, by grace I will bring these things about. You know what I love about when God says something? When God says it, it becomes the law of the universe. It will happen. So let's unpack these promises just a little bit. The first promise, I will make you a great nation, must have caused Abraham to drop his jaw. Because first, I mean, just think about it if God said that to you. I, I can't even get into that headspace to fathom a nation coming from me. 
But more importantly is that terse little statement in Genesis 11, verse 30, you see there, where it tells us Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no children. And the text tells us that when he leaves to go to the land of Canaan, Abraham is 75 years old. Any of my friends in their 70s planning on children anytime soon. Sarai in her mid-60s. So the last hope in the world for them was just to even have one child, let alone to become a nation. And yet, God promised it. Abraham believed it. And in history, God delivered by forming this nation of Israel. That second promise, I will bless you. If you want to boil down these seven promises to an essence of what God intends to do, the word is blessing. When you read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the word blessing is used five times. And then in just these two verses, God repeats bless five times to Abraham. He is a God who wants something for him, not a God who wants something from him. The idea of blessing in the Bible means to confer abundant life, an effective life on someone. In Abraham's life, blessing just follows him everywhere he goes, even to the degree that people that are in the same region that he is end up finding blessing to themselves. But God intends to bless you too. You see, when the Bible talks about blessing uh, in the Christian's life, Blessing comes when a person's in a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we rightly order our lives, when we walk in his wisdom, in his word, um, blessing results in our relationship to God and our relationship to people. It can't help but follow us. You have to get it out, the idea outside of your mind that blessing means that my bank account's full all the time. Or that I'm never sick. That's not what the Bible talks about with blessing. It's a little different. Now, let's go on. I will make your name great. In the ancient Near East, the name had to do with your reputation and your identity. So you might recall last week in chapter 11 of Genesis that the builders wanted to make a great name for themselves. They thought that through human ingenuity and human effort that they could achieve some kind of stature, that they would uh, build, if you will, a legacy. But real quick, let me ask you a question. Can you name one of the builders of Babel? Do you know any of their names? I can't. In fact, I'm trying to think of a name from someone that isn't associated with Abraham in his own day and age. I can't think of a name. But Abraham, now, wow. That's a name that's recognized by three world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And those three religions named their children after Abraham. In fact, in the 4,000 years since uh, his passing, I suspect that more boys have been named Abraham in human history than by any other name that I can think of. But greater than the name, or the name being passed on to children, is what the name has come to represent. Abraham represents faith. Faith in the promises of God. When I think of the name Abraham, I think of faith in the promises of God. 
as you consider these three blessings we just looked at, I love uh, an implication that we see between verse 1 and 2. You see, in verse 1, God calls Abraham to give up everything. In verse 2, God tells Abraham that he's going to receive something better. I wonder if you think of God as being exclusively, exclusively in the business of taking away. You know, we think of God entering into our life and he's going to remove things like our comfort and our resources and entertainment and our securities and that's it. Now I got to go live in a hut somewhere as a hermit and just wait for heaven because that's when the party's going to start, if it even starts there. But that's not how I see God work in the Bible. Don't misunderstand me. God does strip things away. He removes he asks us to leave and forsake and let go of. You think of that story of the rich young ruler and he comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is very quick back to him and he says, if you would be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions to the poor and then come and follow me. I remember when I was 18 and I first read that, I was like, seriously, I got to sell everything to follow Jesus? Now, that's not what the Bible's exactly saying for everyone, but for some of you, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Because why? Because possessions have a stranglehold on you. You're not living a Jesus plus nothing equals everything kind of life. You're living a Jesus plus resources equals security kind of life. And let me just tell you, that doesn't work out in God's economy of faith. And so for this rich young ruler, he would have to just give it all up before he'd be ready to live a life of faith. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29 to his disciples. He says, Everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, I understand this statement to mean something that God's adding increase to your, not, your life presently now and also into eternity. I know of Christians who have forsaken much to follow Christ, family relationships, homeland, uh, personal desires, vacations, free times, hobbies, and even wealth. And when you go to them and you ask them, hey, was that worth it? They all unequivocally say it was hard, but it was worth it. Now, when I think of worth, I think of something had to have value added to it. I wouldn't say that something was worth it if I received absolutely no value from the exchange. So something must have added value to their life. And the Bible says that the value that is added to your life is abundant life, flourishing life. You receive a new family. You receive new priorities. You receive new passions. That's why it's worth it. Here's what you find. If you pursue God's unconventional call, you gain everything by losing everything. God strips you down so that God can build you up. God removes so that he can add to you. Fourth, you shall be a blessing. The Hebrew text probably more literally reads, 
be a blessing. So it's a command and it's not a prediction here. God isn't blessing Abraham so that he can lock those blessings away in his lockbox, dig a hole in the ground and bury them. He's not fattening them up so he'd be this big blessed man walking around. No. God is blessing Abraham so that Abraham can be a conduit or a pipeline of God's blessings to other people. It's the same thing he intends to do with you. He wants his people to be blessing dispensaries. Now some of us kind of like greedy sponges with the blessings of God. We love to soak up God's blessings. I mean, we just walk around and, oh, I need another Bible study so I can have another piece of information in my head. I need another prayer meeting so that I can lift up another one of my prayer concerns to God. I I need another sermon so there's another joke that I can laugh at or another critique that I can have about the preacher or more money so that I can enjoy more things or another missions trip so that I can have another experience and feel good about myself. We're like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Oh. If you consider what happens when a sponge only goes all the time, well, two things. First, the sponge becomes saturated. It takes in all that it can take, and it can't take in no more. Maybe you're not experiencing the freshness of your walk with God for that reason. The second thing that can happen, and this is worse, if you stay saturated too long, you become yucky, stale, and stagnant. You become a sour grapes Christian. You stop caring about holiness and fellowship, and you take on the the, uh, place of being a, a legalist where nothing's good enough for you. You wish other people loved Jesus as much as you do, and you have no grace for anybody else because you haven't experienced God's grace lately. Well, friend, I gotta tell you, I wanna see all of you experience God's blessing in fresh and new ways. And the only way that you are going to experience the blessings of God is by squeezing the sponge out to other people. So if you've been getting that biblical knowledge in your head, grab a baby Christian by the hand and squeeze out that sponge into their life. If your life has been all about the next paycheck, squeeze out the sponge and get involved in the mission of God. If it's been a a grudge that you've been harboring in your heart but you can't have grace for that other person, squeeze out the sponge with grace because God is the God of grace and he's given you so much grace. Here's what you'll find The more you squeeze, the more you give away, the more the sponge can receive. Fresh waves of that pure water of God. Five and six, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, I appreciate Ray Stedman's observation here. Essentially, he's promising that God is going to identify with Abraham in a very unique sort of way, kind of like how a parent identifies with their children. I'll tell you what, when someone blesses my kids, I want to bless them. And when someone intentionally seeks to harm my children, look out because Katie's coming. <laughs> 
whoever touches them touches us, right? And this is how God feels about his people. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is how God feels about you. But most specifically to the children of Abraham, Donald Barnhouse notes that when a man dies, a physician has to write on the death certificate the cause of death. When a nation dies, more often than not, the cause of death is that that nation has mistreated the Jews. And the same has been the case for the mistreatment of the church. God cares and identifies with his people. Seventh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this last verse in um, chapter 12, verse 3, is the second messianic promise that we find in Genesis. So 3.15, God promised that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent. 1 John 3.8, why did Jesus come to the world? The, Jesus, uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. So that happened when Jesus died on the cross. But another reason he appeared is so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Galatians 3, 6 through 9, New Living Translation. In the same way Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to the time when God would make the Gentiles right. Gentile means nations. Right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed the good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. So the people in Abraham's day, the people in our day, the people who uh, live beyond us, they're all blessed through the same person, Jesus See, God has a heart for the nations. From day one, God has been about the nations. To the point that his heart's so big that he sent his only son into the world to live the life we couldn't live, die on the cross in place of our sins, and raise to new life so that we could have new life in him. So you'd think if God has a heart for the nations like this, then his people had better have a heart for the nations. I love these monumental words from the late John Stott. We must be global people with a global vision because our God is a global God. See, God doesn't want you to just take that sponge and dispense it at Osterville Baptist Church or just Cape Cod. He wants the outpouring of his blessing to go to the nations by going to them and telling them about Jesus or sending your resources so someone else can go tell them about Jesus or sending your best and your finest so that they can go and work amongst the nations. So as we move from these promises, we'll look at now Abraham's unconventional response. Um, the last verse uh, six verses of this section illustrate for us what the life of faith looks like, the ebbs and flow of the life of faith. The great uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews 
talking about faith, says this of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. One author has described faith like this. Living by faith means obeying God's word in spite of feeling circumstances or consequences. It means holding on to God's truth. No matter how heavy the burden or how dark the day, knowing that he is working out his perfect plan, it means living by promises and not by explanations. And we see in the life of Abraham this life of faith. So let's look at a couple of implications. The first implication is that Abraham's faith was imperfect, but that God could work with it. See, God says go Verse 4 tells us that Abraham went as the Lord had told him. But what you might have missed is the little gap between those verses. The gap is Haran. You see, in Acts 7-2, Stephen tells us that Abraham had received that call in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans, before he had gone to Haran. Well, where did Stephen get this idea? Well, Genesis 11.32. It tells us that they had set out to go to Canaan, but then they came to Haran, and what did they do? Settled there. Some scholars would suggest that Abraham was in Haran for approximately 15 years before finally going on to Canaan. Oh, wait a minute. But didn't God say, go and isn't it implicit that he kind of meant, like, go now? And, and didn't God say, go without all those people? Like, go by yourself? Yeah. Friends, this is an example of partial obedience and delayed obedience. Once again, Abraham, like Noah, sins the same dreadful sins that we sin. So how is God going to use someone that listens halfway and does it on his timetable? Well, the operative word is grace. Every time that sin seeks to unglue God's plan, God holds it together by his grace. He wants to work through us and use us. And maybe this is a word that you need to hear because maybe some of you have decided that you want to camp out in Haran. Now, Haran, this word means barren. It's the land of spiritual compromise. It's the land where we hear God's word in one ear and feel pressured by the world in the other ear. What is your Haran? What could be your job? It could be your reputation and how you want to be perceived by people. It could be your health. It could be that dream that you've always had hanging out there that you wanted to pursue. For some of you, your Haran could be that grudge that you've been nursing. You say you want to let it go, but it feels good every time you come back to it. Well, friends, you weren't made to live in Haran. That's not the place where God can maximize your life and, and get the most out of your faith walk. We have to pick up our tent and move out of Haran and go to the place that God's called us to go, the land of Canaan. That's where God can use us in the most significant ways. So the second thing that we see is that faith requires the steps of next, uh, the next steps of obedience. If you're ever asking yourself, well, what does God want me to do with my life? It's pretty simple. Your next step 
is to do the next right thing. I mean, sometimes we get this like pie-in-the-sky dream that I'm going to go off to a distant land and tell everybody about Jesus and thousands of people are going to come to Christ and, and God might have that in play for you. But your next step right now in this moment is to do the next right thing. So if it's that grudge, your next step is to forgive. If it's that ministry call, your next step is to go to the person that you know that can help get you involved in that ministry. If it's to give, your next step is to actually pull out the checkbook and write the check. The next step for Abraham was to pick up his tent and his family and take all of his possessions and travel those 500 miles from Haran down to Shechem. Verse 5, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions, the people they had acquired, and they set out. And they went to the land of Canaan. One thing that I love about this next step of obedience is the text tells us that he took all of his possessions. Meaning, he had no intentions of returning back. Because if I'm going to go back, I'm leaving a couple things just in case. But this is a one-way ticket. Can you imagine? You're setting out to this land you don't know about. It's do or die. Either God is faithful or you are ruined. While I said that Abraham has imperfect faith, there is a reason why he is the faith guy in the Bible. Because he is the first person to have trusted God with everything. He's the pioneer. You think it's George Mueller of Bristol who uh, you read about praying and he got all of his income for himself personally and he raised all this money for these orphanages? No, it was Abram. Abram, a man who received a call from a God he'd never known, believed his promises and went without a return ticket. Friends, that's radical obedience. That's the kind of obedience that Jesus is longing from from you. Now, I understand that no one begins their faith walk as a mature Christian. Some of you come into the church and you've just been walking with Jesus maybe for a couple of days, maybe for a year, and you think, oh boy, I can never be like these people. Well, here's the deal. You don't have to be like these people. You have to be like Jesus. (laughs) And that takes time. So take the time that you need, but hear this. God has a purpose for your life. He wants you to be a radically obedient Christian. He wants to grow you from where you say to God, I will follow you to some places and do some things for you sometimes to become the kind of Christian that says wherever, whatever, whenever. That's where God's taking you. Radical obedience Sounds scary, doesn't it? It is scary. If you take God out of the equation. But as one author notes, it makes no difference where it is or what its geology or geography. If the Lord leads us there, it's the land for us. If the Lord does not lead us, it can never be the right land, even though it is paved with diamonds. Third and final implication Faith distinguishes between the temporal and the eternal. Now, I'm just going to blow through these last few verses quickly because we're running out of time. But verse 8 tells us that he went 
and moved to the hill country east of Bethel. So he'd gone down to the land, went to Shechem, then to Bethel. And there he pitched his tent. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is an amazing little trip. Abram goes into the heart of Canaan and he builds altars in these three significant places, Shechem, Bethel, and then in the Negev region in the south. Essentially, what Abram is declaring when he shows up into this place is that God now owns this. It's his. He didn't need to say anything. I mean, the earth is the Lord's. The universe is the Lord's. But by faith, declaring that this region is for God. Jacob follows in the same footsteps. He goes to those three places. Joshua, when he enters into the land, goes to those same three places. But equally profound is the way that he chose to live and the way that he chose to worship. The text is very clear. He put down a tent. He built an altar. A tent is a temporary dwelling. A tent says this isn't home. But the altar made out of stone is more permanent and says this is more foundational to my life, more important to it. He saw his earthly dwelling is temporal. His relationship with God is permanent. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise, living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, I want you to hear me rightly on this next statement. You're not a citizen of the United States of America. You're a pilgrim. You're not a wanderer. A wanderer is someone who's going about aimlessly, directionlessly, with no end result in mind. You're a pilgrim. Someone who is just passing through someone who has a purposeful destination in mind. This is the significance of Abraham. He looked at this life and and the stuff of this life, and to him it was just stuff, but the things of God carried the weight and the significance of eternity for him. Friends, when you start training your heart and your mind to think like that, then you will live the unconventional life. When you see the significance of eternity in what you're doing, you do things that eternally matter. When you go about by conventional wisdom trying to live the conventional way, well then you build mansions on earth and you pray that you get a tent in heaven. My prayer for each one of you is that you would hear God's unconventional call, believe his unconventional promises, and walk by unconventional faith. Friend, I'm telling you, the way to go is the unconventional route. So if you would, would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?